the truths that we have sung throughout the worship set. Thank you, Lord, that our vision, the exploration of our heart and of our mind is not limited to the things of this world. We would, like Solomon, just look around and say, then everything is empty and vexation of spirit, vanity, Lord. But we thank you that the very thing that we've been created for, relationship with you, to worship you with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength, and to love you with all of that as well, Lord, that you have led us into that portion, that good place. And we're so thankful for how good you are to us. We've experienced it for so long, and we are so grateful for that tonight. We bless you for your goodness. We bless you for your grace in our lives, and we do so with the recognition that we don't recognize even 1% of it as it's flowing toward us. Thank you, Lord, for this Bible, this book that you've given to us to reveal yourself to us through it and to reveal your will for our lives. And we pray that now as we continue to worship you in the study of your word, that you would be pleased in this place and that you would lead us and guide us into these truths and realities, Lord, that will outlive the physical realm that is around us, all of the heavens and all of the earth. Meet with us, Lord, as you have for thousands of years with your people. We pray for that same wonderful grace of your presence through your word tonight as well. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. Okay. I can't let that slide. Well, please be seated, and uh, good evening to you. Okay, there we go. All right. That's great. Just wanted to know everybody didn't have their earbuds in and listening to who knows what tonight. Let's turn our Bibles tonight to Matthew chapter 11, Sunday night, study all the way through the Scriptures. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now, and they've got Bibles. Wave to them. They'll get one in your hands, and... Sunday night, I think you'll be fairly lost without being able to read along uh, as we try to cover a little bit of ground on the Sunday evenings. Chapter 11 of Matthew's Gospel. Now, it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples, and we remember as we studied this last week, he commissioned them now to go into the surrounding uh, villages there in Israel to preach to them that the kingdom of God is at hand and uh, performing the miracles and all of these different kinds of things. And then Jesus promised he would then follow them uh, to these cities, being the uh, kingdom of God himself and the author of salvation. And so now they are sent forth, and then he departed from there to now follow uh, in the footsteps of the cities that they were going to to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John, that is John the Baptist, heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. Now John the Baptist is in prison at this particular point, and in the narrative of Matthew's gospel, he is in prison for having confronted a, uh, a governor of uh, Judea there by the name of Herod, confronting him for a, um, uh, a wrongdoing in his life, sexual immorality. Herod had taken his brother Philip's wife to himself. Somehow John the Baptist is either asked about that or pulled into it some way, or he confronts Herod uh, directly himself. We don't really know, but he condemns the action of Herod. Herod had him arrested and imprisoned, and that's where he is right now, 
John the Baptist is in, in prison. You can imagine what that would be like if you've ever seen like rats in a cage or something in some kind of lab or whatever. Here is a man who is made for the outdoors. It's all that he's known. He has no interest in city life, much less being in a prison. And his whole adult life has been in the Judean wilderness, out in the open spaces. If you've ever been to Israel or you ever Google the Judean wilderness, the Jordan River, where it is that John the Baptist uh, performed his ministry and fulfilled it, uh, you see it's a very barren kind of area, very, very clean in its barrenness, a very simple place to stay focused in the things of the Lord, kind of ascetic as he was. And, uh, and so uh, this was what he was used to, and now he finds himself in prison. And uh, so he might not have much of a problem with being in prison for having confronted uh, Herod for his uh, sexual immorality, but surely in his mind he thinks to himself, Jesus is still free, Jesus is out ministering, and uh, here I am in prison for righteousness' sake, and so it must be just a matter of time before he's going to break me out of this prison. But as the time goes on, he is hearing reports of Jesus doing all of these miraculous things in the surrounding cities, and it seems as if he's been forgotten, and he remains now in this very, very difficult circumstance for him in this prison. And so these are the circumstances that John the Baptist finds himself in. He's hearing these reports of Jesus' miracles, and he sent two of his disciples to Jesus, and the disciples delivered this message from John to Jesus, are you the coming one that, the, that is the Messiah, or do we look for another? Wow. That's a trial. This is John the Baptist who is having an indescribable crisis of faith. And whatever's going on in this situation, he is doubting that Jesus is the Messiah. That's how difficult the trial is that he is facing in his life. Are you the Messiah, or are we still looking for him? Now remember the background of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was in the womb of his mother Elizabeth. When Mary came to the house of Elizabeth, and at the voice of Mary carrying Jesus in her womb, John the Baptist does some kind of a somersault in his mother's womb. I mean, he's like filled with the Spirit within the womb. Later on in his ministry, he is there baptizing Jesus at the Jordan River. And when Jesus comes to be baptized, they are cousins. He says to Jesus, you don't need to be baptized by me. I need to be baptized by you. The greater needs to do the baptizing of the lesser. What am I doing baptizing you? He heard as he baptized Jesus, the Father declare concerning Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Later on, he speaks to his own disciples. John the Baptist does and says concerning Jesus and turning them away from following Him supremely to now become a follower of Jesus. He says to them, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
He declared concerning himself in the light of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. Here is a man who knows all of this. He's experienced all of this, and yet he is wondering now, having doubts about the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, sometimes people can look down on people that enter into a trial that is significant enough that it makes them doubt whether all of this is real or whether Jesus really is who he says he is or whether Christianity really is the truth. This guy's in a major crisis of faith in his life. And to me, it is he is facing in his own way in his own circumstances, what I think is the greatest trial that any of us will ever face in our Christian life. I don't say that everyone does, but I do know that people do face it. And that is when God, I call it unmet uh, uh, expectations, where we expect God to operate a certain way in our life. And then when he doesn't, especially in a big trial, like you're being in prison, the loss of a child, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a spouse, a bankruptcy, your whole world goes down the tubes, whatever it might be. But here there is this something comes into a person's life and they look at it and their whole spiritual life is rocked by that trial. If you look at John the Baptist or you look at a Christian who is in the middle of that kind of a trial, and they have doubts about things as a result of that, and you look down on that kind of a Christian, don't do that. Don't look at them and say, I am superior to them. That could never happen to me. It could happen to you in an instant. But it's just like Jesus would not let Peter sink in the water. He's got his grip upon us. But there are those trials in life that if he doesn't have his grip upon us, we're not going to survive them, and we're not going to, our faith isn't as well. Jesus spoke to Peter uh, before, on the night before he was crucified. He said, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to deny that you even know me. That'll never happen. If they kill me, it'll never happen. He said, Jesus said, in essence, it will happen, but I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. This is no spiritual lightweight that is in the middle of this kind of a trial. And he is having a very significant trial of faith. Now, there are certain trials of faith that we experience because we doubt the power of God. We look at it and we say, here I am, I'm in this crisis, and I've been in it so long, and that's what John the Baptist is in. It's, it, it isn't that he was in prison, but that he still remains in prison. And Jesus, who is fully able of miraculously delivering him from that prison, is not doing it. So there is this crisis of faith that we can sometimes face where we look at something and we, the crisis of faith is we doubt God's ability to meet our need in this situation. That's not the crisis of faith that John the Baptist is having. The other crisis of faith that we will face in our Christian lives is when we find ourselves in an extraordinarily difficult trial. And we know that God could deliver us from this in an instant, and yet He doesn't. And that is a crisis of faith that isn't a doubting of God's ability, but it's a doubting of His wisdom. It's a doubting 
of his ways. And this is where John the Baptist finds himself in the middle of of all of this, and it's really something to look at. If you don't believe that this happens in Christians' lives, then just keep walking with the Lord and just stay in contact with Christians because this happens on a regular basis where something happens that rocks a person's world and they have significant doubts about God as a result of that, even as a very mature Christian who has significant head knowledge concerning Christ and significant experiential knowledge of Christ as John the Baptist did. Now that sets the table. Some of you are a little bit freaked out saying, I think you're being a little bit too honest here about John the Baptist's crisis and what he's in the middle of and this kind of a doubt and all. We shouldn't be encouraging that. We can't ignore that it happens. And we can't ignore that it might very well and probably does exist in a number of lives in this room right now, or it's in our immediate past, or it's in our immediate future. It doesn't do us any good to gloss over what it is that Jesus is going to do now in this. Jesus knows full well the crisis that John the Baptist is in. So if you've been in that place, you are in that place, or you one day find yourself in that place, the same place as John the Baptist, now our antennas are completely up to see how in the world does Jesus respond to this. He's not offended by it at all. He's not that thin-skinned. And John the Baptist, the first great thing that we notice about him in this situation is when he's in his crisis of faith, he brings his questions to God. He brings his questions to Jesus. Jesus is not afraid of any of our questions. He's not afraid of honest prayer that's delivered to him, honest communication that we speak to him. The Psalms are filled with honest communication where you look and go, wow, did he say that to God? He said it respectfully, but that's quite a question that he's uh, got going on in his mind in terms of what's going on in his life and what God is or isn't doing related to that. And so he brings his question commendably to Jesus. And then Jesus answered, and he said to them now to deliver this message back to uh, John the Baptist. He said, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. And I believe it's either Mark's gospel or Luke's gospel that tells us at this point, before he ever said this to the two messengers, This great multitude is around him, and he begins to go into the crowd, and he just begins to heal them. He begins to heal people of their diseases. He begins to cleanse them of their leprosy. He begins to um, minister to the needs that are going on in their life. And then he says to the messengers, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. What he is doing here is Jesus is quoting from several different passages in the book of Isaiah, prophetic verses that spoke to the fact that the Messiah, when he came into the world, he would do these things. And so basically he's saying, go back to John and let him know that what he, even though I am, my actions are not fulfilling his expectations of me related to his life and related to his ministry at the moment. 
that I am the Messiah not on the basis ever of an individual's uh, physical circumstances being unmet, but I am the Messiah based upon the prophetic Scriptures. And he then he quotes these passages and his essence telling John, your faith in me needs to be based on not what I do or I don't do, even in a crisis as big as the one you're facing in your life. Faith in me as the Messiah needs to be based supremely upon the fact that I am the Messiah based upon the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. I am the Messiah based upon the most trustworthy thing in the world, and that is the Word of God. Let me say this. There is a very, very good chance that every single one of us who walks with the Lord and especially if you serve the Lord, that you will ultimately find yourself in a place and in a trial that is going to test your spiritual equilibrium as a result of that. And no experience from your past, not your testimony, not all of the years in church and the worship services and all the things that you're experienced, those things will not get you through this trial in terms of your faith remaining upon Jesus Christ for who He is, the one that has made a way for us to have a personal relationship with God. The thing that will anchor you and the thing that will hold you is the Word of God. And that's what Jesus speaks. He gives the Word of God back to John the Baptist. I am Messiah based upon the prophetic Word of God. The Word of God never, ever changes at all. And there comes that time in our lives where we hit that crisis sometimes and we look at this and say, listen, if I, my faith was based upon my experience with God or based upon this or that or my circumstances, I wouldn't make it through this. But nobody but God could have defined and described the coming Messiah the one who would come into the world as the Savior of the world prophetically the way that God has done in the Old Testament, nobody could do that other than God Himself. And you look at it and you say, yes, everything else is crumbling around me as a basis for my faith, but the one thing I can't get away from is that Jesus is the Messiah and that He is a perfect a perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah to come. And it holds. That's an anchor that holds. Peter spoke about this in his second epistle. And he wrote this there. And remember, Peter is going to die crucified upside down for his faith in Christ. He's going to face his own crisis and he wrote there in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we received from God the Father honor and glory when there came a voice to him, that is Jesus, from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him on the holy mount. He's describing his experience 
with James and John when they were up on the uh, Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Jesus transfigured into His eternal glory. Peter, you remember, he said, let, me, let us build three tabernacles, one for Elijah, one for Moses, and one for you, Jesus, as Elijah and Moses also appeared there as the disciples were with Jesus there in all of the glory, and they sp- were speaking about uh, spiritual things. And yet, John, here is Peter later on in his life when he looks and he speaks to people about uh, the reason for a faith in Jesus as the Messiah and as the Son of God. He says, I don't believe in Him as the Son of God based upon even as great an experience as I had, as unique an experience as I had, as being on the Mount of Transfiguration and hearing God the Father declare, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He said, this is what I base my faith in Christ upon. As he goes on to speak in that passage, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, and therefore you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arises in your heart. He said, the basis for my faith, the ultimate foundation for my faith in Christ and in, in, in Him as the Messiah and as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, is based not upon any experience, no matter how great I've had with God. It is based upon the Word of God. And that's the thing that saves a person when they hit that kind of a crisis. And some of us in this room already have, and some others of us will future in our Christian life. You say, how do you know it was enough for John the Baptist? Because the message came back to him, and he would die a martyr's death, having his head cut off from his body by Herod himself. There would be no change in his circumstance. And yet he died in a position of faith in Christ. And this was the exact word that he needed. Don't believe in me based upon the difficulty of your circumstances or even the height of spiritual experience that you've had in your Christian life, but believe in me as the Messiah based upon the Word of God. That will never move in our lives. And it was exactly what John the Baptist needed to hear. And that's why Jesus said, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. John, I may not be meeting your expectations, but I am meeting the expectation of the Scriptures. And so they departed to declare the message there to John the Baptist. And as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John. Now, you might imagine, here's a crowd, and they hear this thing that John the Baptist, John the Baptist is a spiritual rock star in Israel at this time. And they hear the disciples of John deliver this message to Jesus, and now there is a concern about what are they now going to think of John the Baptist. And Jesus is so beautiful in this passage because he is going to protect John's reputation in the midst of all of this, and he is going to defend John, uh, John in all of this and speak highly, very highly uh, of him to the multitudes. He said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? 
the wilderness of Judea when they went out to see him preaching? Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? Did you go out and see someone who changes his message every time the wind is blowing differently culturally or spiritually within Jerusalem or Judea or the United States of America? No, you didn't. You went out and you went to listen to someone who said the same thing day in and day out about God that we all needed to hear, and uh, no matter what was popular or wasn't popular. But what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a man clothed in soft garments? Uh, indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. We remember that John the Baptist, he wore uh, pretty rough clothes, had a pretty very uh, organic diet, shall we say, and, um, and all. he could have schmoozed his way into any kind of a position within the power brokers and the power structure of uh, Rome at that time and the, the government of Rome there in Jerusalem and in Israel, but he didn't do that. He wasn't interested in compromising the message, even to gain Herod's favor, even in order to save his life and, and, and then have a, a comfortable, uh, nice clothing kind of life. Uh, they didn't go out to see a guy that was like that. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, and I say to you, more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi prophesies that when the Messiah comes into the world, he would send a forerunner before uh, the Messiah to then prepare the way for the coming of Messiah, which is exactly what John the Baptist did. And so he says, John the Baptist is a fulfillment of this prophecy. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Wow, that is quite a thing to have Jesus saying uh, about him and uh, a beautiful truth about John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven, that is a Christian, is greater than he. Do you realize that you are uh, greater in uh, this respect as, as just a simple born-again Christian than John the Baptist was? John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he spoke of and he preached of the coming of the Messiah who would provide an access into the kingdom of God through his sacrifice. How are we better than that? We are actually in that kingdom. We look back and the privileges that are ours, the blessings that are ours through faith in Christ, these things we experience that John the Baptist never did because he died before Jesus died on the cross and was buried and rose again on the third day. So even just as a simple kind of Christian here tonight, what we know about God, what we experience with God, what we have in a relationship with God is vastly superior to, to uh, what it is that John the Baptist experienced because we're in the fullness of the covenant that he preached was coming our way. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. There's always been violence against God's servants, against the kingdom of God. John the Baptist was one in a long line of, of faithful servants to die a martyr's death. And here he was opposed by the religious leaders. He was opposed by the secular leaders and the violent take it by force. The kingdom of God has always 
uh, under violent attack uh, in the world. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The Bible teaches, again, the book of Malachi, that when the Messiah comes, that Elijah will come as a forerunner before him. And I think it's Malachi chapter 3 that speaks to that fact. And uh, Jesus is saying, indeed, uh, Elijah will come as a forerunner to Jesus prior to his second coming. But he's declaring here that John the Baptist was a shadow or a type of Elijah who will perform his ministry in this way at Jesus' second coming. Uh, here is John the Baptist as a type or a, a, a shadow of Elijah in performing uh, his ministry in Jesus' first coming. Uh, but to what shall I liken this generation? Now, remember this whole crowd that's gathered around Jesus. It's a lot of people who are very sincere in wanting to hear what it is that Jesus has to say. They're interested in His teaching. They are followers of His. But there's a tremendous, there's a very large number of, of religious leaders that are there in order to try and find fault with Him. And so He now begins to speak uh, kind of uh, to those religious leaders that were in the crowd at this particular point and uh, to do it in, in, you know, before the entire audience that is there. He said, but to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned for you and you did not lament. So here's the picture that Jesus has got in his mind. It's just like um, if you ever watch like a Western on TV. That's, that's, I mean, like really a long time ago in the United States. But if you if you watch a Western, here is mom and dad. They come from the homestead. They come into town. They go into the general store to buy some flour and sugar and et cetera, coffee, all of these kind of things. And the kids are left outside to play. And so what are kids going to do? They're going to play. And, uh, and so the same thing happened in that age too where you'd come into the, to town and then the kids would be outside and they would be playing. And so here is a, Jesus is talking about a group of kids and they're wanting to play and some of them are saying, well, let's play wedding. Let's play something fun. Let's play something happy. And then there's a, a, a group that say, no, we don't want to do that. And they say, all right, let's go to the other end of the extreme. If you don't want to play wedding, you don't want to play something fun, let's play funeral. And, uh, and so these same people say, no, we don't want to play funeral uh, either. And, and, uh, and he's speaking about the religious leaders here that no matter who God sent to them, whether he sends John the Baptist to them as an ascetic and, and he comes living a very strict kind of lifestyle, John the Baptist didn't please them. And then Jesus comes and he doesn't live that kind of a lifestyle. He eats and he drinks with sinners and so forth and all of these kind of things. And they declare him to be, you know, a, a wine bibber and, and they find fault with him and all of that. Jesus speaks of it here. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And the Son of Man comes, he's eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a wine bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so no matter who God sent to these people, speaking of the scribes, the Pharisees, 
and the Sadducees, no matter who God sent to them, from whatever extreme in terms of personality, in terms of expression, in terms of message, they wouldn't accept it. They could not be satisfied. And there are people in this world that cannot be satisfied no matter what God does uh, for them and no matter what message of truth that God uh, declares to them. And the reason that they can't be satisfied is they don't want to be satisfied. And so the trouble that they had with John the Baptist, the trouble they had with Jesus was they didn't like the message that they spoke from God. And so here is Jesus confronting them with, with this kind of a parable a little bit and uh, declaring to them they can't be satisfied no matter what God does for them. They can never, ever be satisfied. And then Jesus closes this by saying, but wisdom is justified by her children. One of my favorite uh, lines in all of the Bible, wisdom is justified by the type of human being that it produces. Wisdom is not wisdom because the world believes it to, wis to be wisdom. It is not wisdom because the world uh, forces a definition of their wisdom upon us and then tells us that it is, is wisdom. Wisdom is not wisdom because it's believed to be wisdom by the majority of the world. Wisdom, it, it, wisdom uh, can't declare the right to be viewed as, as wisdom in that kind of way. Wisdom is justified by her children. Wisdom is declared to be wisdom and, and revealed to be wisdom based upon the quality of human being that the wisdom produces. And you look all around the world, and to me it is one of, it isn't the single greatest evidence for the inspiration of the, of the Scriptures being inspired by God. But I think one of the great evidences for the divine inspiration of the Scriptures is to look at the quality of human being that is produced by the wisdom of God. Uh, the quality of life that, is, uh, that comes to pass as a result of just simply knowing and obeying the Word of God. And you take God's wisdom and you apply it to a life in India or in Colombia or the United States of America or Russia or anywhere, and immediately that life is transformed and always for good and always for virtue. Wisdom is justified by the quality of person that it produces. And Jesus is t declaring to the religious leaders, look at the kind of human being that your legalism produces as opposed to the kind of human being that my word and my teaching produces. And he is causing the audience there that's, that's listening and, and asking them to make the same consideration. I don't think that there is anything. You can study all of the philosophies of the world, all of the religions of the world, and there is nothing that produces the quality of life that is produced in the life of a simple Christian who knows God's Word and obeys His Word. We are a walking advertisement for the fact that only God knows what He's talking about in this world. Wisdom is justified by her children. And then he began to debate or rather rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And he said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! 
For if the mighty works had been done in you that had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And then he moves on in verse 23 to uh, uh, rebuke Capernaum. And Capernaum was the headquarters of Jesus' uh, public ministry, his three and a half years of public ministry. Beautiful city that is a ruin now that is on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Chorazin, Bethsaida, just kind of a stone's throw uh, you know, figuratively speaking, from Capernaum. This is where Jesus operated. This is where he spent most of his time. This is where he did most of his miracles, was in the vicinity and within these, within these cities. They had a tremendous privilege of being exposed to his teaching, being exposed to his miracles. Again, Capernaum, which was kind of his adopted hometown in his, in his public ministry, he rebukes them by saying, "In you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven because of the fact that they had such a familiarity with Jesus, they had such an exposure to His teaching and to His miracles, you will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works had been done in you, uh, which were done in you, had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Wow. Jesus says to them, Jewish city, they know about Sodom and Gomorrah. If, I, if the teaching and if the miracles that had been done in you in the last few years of my public ministry, if these things had been done in Sodom, that city would have repented, and you haven't repented. And we remember that Sodom and Gomorrah, that they were judged uh, greatly for um, just gross sexual immorality, violence, sexual violence, this kind of, of a thing, and yet, and yet here is Capernaum, and uh, Jesus is speaking to them of being guilty of something that's even greater than that. And the guilt, the greatest sin that a person can ever commit in life is not sexual immorality or all the other things that people do, whether in Sodom and Gomorrah or in San Francisco or wherever it is, you know, here today. The single greatest sin that any human being will ever commit against God is to reject His Son and to reject the salvation that is found in His Son in the light of such a miraculous life and such a miraculous uh, teaching in his, in his life. So very amazing what he speaks here to Capernaum, and he says, but I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. No one goes, nobody ends up in heaven one day because of the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, as, as great as those sins were, or any other sin. We don't end up in heaven or we don't end up in hell based upon the fact that we are sinners or how, uh, to what degree we explored sin in the course of our life. We end up in our eternal destination based solely upon uh, one sin that we either commit or we don't commit, and that is what we do with Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, because all sins can be forgiven, and God wants to forgive them, and every sin is forgivable through a faith in Christ. And what this passage teaches us, and it is a very, very significant truth, it teaches us that the greater the privilege, 
then the greater the responsibility. These cities had tremendous privilege in getting to hear Jesus and getting to see His miracles and getting to watch His life up close and up front and close to be able to do that. They had tremendous privilege, and with that privilege was a greater responsibility to then put their faith in Christ. Always spiritually, the greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. And one day the person who would have, you know, rejected Christ in, say, Sodom and Gomorrah or rejected the idea of a coming Messiah or walking with God, looking ahead by faith to the coming uh, Messiah, and then someone who rejected Jesus and died in their sins, having been in Capernaum at this time, the person from Capernaum is going to face a greater judgment because they sinned against greater light. It's significant for us in this day in which we live Think about, you know, people talk about um, our Christian, Judeo-Christian heritage as Christians or as a nation, the United States of America, and it's very, very true. Uh, All you got to do is go to India, go to other parts of the world where um, you're not going to be raised in, you know, around churches on every corner or hearing the gospel or Christian television on the television or whatever, Uh, these people, you know, God has to send someone through 200 miles of jungle to get the gospel to them. Well, we will face, a, a person who rejects Christ in our culture will face a harsher judgment than the other person if both people die without Christ. Always with greater privilege, there is greater responsibility. And of course, today the world has become so small, all you got to do is get us on a search engine on the computer and say, salvation, Jesus Christ, question mark, and you're going to get the gospel. You get a lot of goofy stuff too, but you're going to get the gospel on there. And uh, the world has become so small by virtue of, of technology that virtually the whole world has become like the United States. Access to the truth and teaching and worship and all of these things are just kind of a Uh, you know, a a key on the computer to accessing that in our life. But it's an important uh, truth. And at that time, Jesus uh, answered and He said, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. This is a beautiful uh, little picture of Jesus within um, within the Gospels. Here he is. He's in the middle of increasing rejection against him, and hostility is building against him by the religious establishment. The cross is drawing very, very close now. He's not that far away from it in the narrative here. And yet, as he's looking at all of these, this opposition that's being brought against him, his mind goes to those people in the crowd who have trusted in him. And they aren't the big religious leaders. They aren't the big smart people that have been through the seminary and all of this thing, the equivalent of it in those days. I'm not putting it down necessarily in in this age. I mean, there's no particular blessing on ignorance. But do find a seminary that is uh, godly, by the way, and, and will nurture your faith and not destroy your faith. But here he is. He looks at the 
the individual, the kind of person that is, is following him, that believes in him, and it blesses his heart, and he just has to praise the Father. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, these religious leaders, these know-it-alls, and you have revealed all of this to babes. Isn't it wonderful to think about the fact that as you sit here tonight as a Christian, that your faith in him in a sea of unbelief in this world and in a sea of rejection in this world, it blesses his heart. It blesses his heart. He's thankful for your faith. It blesses him. Sometimes, you know, people look at Christians and the culture gets, we think we're a very sophisticated culture and we're very hip and we're very cosmopolitan and we're all these kind of things. We're the trendsetters. You know, tonight the Academy Awards is going on and if anybody is not in church tonight because they are watching the Academy Awards, may God blow their TV up right now. <laughs> if, they are, if they are watching this at home on the computer and they got the sound turned down and they are watching the Academy Awards, please... All right. Listen, the Lord never uses guilt or condemnation. I do. And to selectively, but I do. But so often here we are, and you just kind of have to get used to it. And certainly, if you are a student in, in, uh, in higher education in the United States of America and all, we're portrayed as just these dumb, stupid old hicks compared to all of these brainiacs and all of these smart people, not only in terms of, you know, their SAT scores or their PhDs, and I'm not putting any of that down. That's great. you got a mind for that, then terrific. But here they are. Here's these people, and then there's just these, you know, superstitious, backward kind of, of Christians, and we're portrayed kind of that way in the culture and by the media so often and, and uh, even in, you know, much of what is written. And yet God, here is Jesus. He looks at his body. He looks at the people that have put their faith in him, and he is completely blessed by them. I'll tell you, give me the body of Christ every time. Every time. Give me a meeting like this. Give me a home fellowship. Give me a prayer meeting. Give anything that has just simple, sincere Christians that are there. And I don't need to go to any fantastic kind of event or some kind of, you know, thing that the world esteems to be this or that. And we're all a bunch of nothings in the face of all of it. Give me the body of Christ. Give me God's saints. Give me babes. Give me people who are humble enough to recognize their need for the gospel and then to put their faith in that gospel. Let me die surrounded by Christians, not by people magazines or the you know, e-network going on on the TV or something like that. I have no interest in any of it. It's the body of Christ, blessed Christ, just simple wonderful people in this way, and it's a blessing to us as well. And he said, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered uh, to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son reveals him. And so uh, Jesus is, you know, speaking here of just kind of praising the Father um, he's, not, he's not saying that Jesus um, reveals himself 
uh, to certain people, and he doesn't reveal himself uh, to others, and that, that God is solely responsible and man is not responsible at all for our eternal destination. And what uh, Jesus is doing here is he is praising the Father for the way that he has chosen to provide salvation to mankind. God has provided a way of salvation that requires a person to be a babe, to be humble in order to uh, receive that and become a part of the body of Christ as opposed to the proud. And so he praises uh, you know, the Father for that, praises him for the salvation that produces this kind of a follower. And then we know that Jesus doesn't exclude anyone from coming into heaven by virtue of the invitation that he gives in verses 28 through 30. It is one of the most amazing invitations found in all of the Bible, declared by God, and Jesus declares it here, and he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. That's everybody. That's everybody. You know, this world's a hard place, and it's a hard place for everyone. Everyone has fallen. Everyone faces a lot of things in life. A lot of people have more money or more power or more whatever to kind of navigate in everything. But you know what? All of those things just introduce a whole new set of problems in their life that we think would free them of any kind of problems, but it doesn't. So we're all envying one another's positions in life or place in life, not realizing we're all facing the same thing, the same hardship. I think about, you know, well, I'm not going to go into all that. You don't even know where I'm going, but look at I just, with disdain, I just, I'm not going to uh, go into that. But here is this invitation to everyone who is laboring and heavy laden in life. We are, every single human being, whether they're saved in this world or they are unsaved in this world, they are caught between two scenes of perfection. Every single person is a long way from the perfection of that Garden of Eden, and they are a long way from heaven, and it is a hard place to be in. We are, every one of us, in a place that God never intended us to be, and that is in a fallen, sin-dominated world. Everyone is laboring and heavy laden. They may not wear it on their sleeve. They may not tell you. They may know how to give appearances. They may know how to wear a $50,000 gown to get the account. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm done with it. But then when you go home and you're all alone, everybody's in that place. Come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and look at this, pro- this uh, promise He gives this invitation, and I will give you rest. The scope of the invitation, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Who's willing to take on your labor and heavy ladenness? Who's who's willing to take on your problems? I mean, we hit problems in life, and then we need a little bit of help, and we call what we think is our best friend, and after three calls, they're not answering the phone anymore. I mean, who can take us on? We can't even take ourselves. I don't blame my friend. They got all of their own problems. How they can they take my problems on as well? Now, who's willing to take on the project that each one of us are and all of the difficulties that are in our life? A magnificent invitation. Come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, and then look at the scope of the promise, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Three things here. Come unto me. That speaks of salvation. Come unto me. It speaks of salvation. All right? Can you put a check next to that or not? We're talking about here the promise of finding rest for our souls. It begins with salvation. Isn't it wonderful to be saved tonight? I'm so used to being saved. I've been saved since 1980. I don't even know what it is to wake up anymore and to be carrying the guilt of my past sin. It's in his hands. I think about it once in a while when the devil brings it to my remembrance. But I mean, the life that I live as a Christian, I mean, it's just fabulous what's been lifted off of us as Christians. Come unto me, salvation, all you who labor and are heavy laden, speaking here of salvation, and I will give you rest. The second thing that he declares here is take my yoke upon you. And a yoke was something that they would use, a wooden yoke, in order to yoke two oxen together to then work in a field. And so here, to take a yoke on somebody else's yoke was a symbol of submission. I am submitting to this person's authority to do the job that they want me to do. So the first check is salvation, coming to Jesus. Number two is the taking my yoke upon you, submitting to Him and His will and His plan for our lives. So we ask ourselves, can I write a check, you know, next to the second one? And then the third thing that's required for this rest for our souls is to come and to learn from me, to make Jesus the model for my life. What would Jesus do? And to make his life the model for the life that I live, salvation, submission to his will in my life, and then a desire to grow into Christ-likeness. And when we grow into Christ-likeness, what we will grow into, as he speaks here, is we will grow into gentleness and lowliness in heart. Now, one of the things you have to remember about this entire scene, by the way, we're not getting into chapter 12 tonight, so some of you can relax. I learned my lesson from this morning, all right? There is a huge crowd that is listening to Jesus as he's declaring this. And there is a very significant religious group, scribes and the Pharisees, that are a part of the crowd that is listening to all of this. And when they thought of religion, the common man in that day, all they could think of was the religion of the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes. And when they looked at religion and making religion a part of their life or worshiping God as they had kind of misinterpreted the law and the prophets, all they saw was a burden. It was like, great, as if I don't have enough problems in my life, now I've got to have a relationship with God that I've got to maintain and then follow all of these rules that these men have come up with in order to adulterate the law and the prophets. And they looked at that, and all they could see is that a relationship with God is going to be nothing but hard work. There's not going to be anything in terms of rest. There's not going to be anything, anything in terms of finding rest for my soul in any of this at all. That's what was represented before them, a relationship with God 
is, now you've got to add to your plate keeping God happy and all of these rules that they've come up with. And Jesus is simplifying everything so easy for them and letting them know that a relationship with God was never intended by God to be that. It was never intended to be another load on our backs, on our way from here to heaven. But it was intended to provide us with rest for our souls and the evidence of the fact that we are on the right path in terms of a relationship with God is that when we are on that right path, it will produce a follower of God who is like Jesus that is gentle and lowly in heart. And the Pharisees were nothing like that. And the Sadducees were nothing like that. And the scribes were nothing like that. And he's lifted this entire load off of the people listening thinking that a relationship with God is what has been misrepresented to them all of their life when it's something entirely different. It is a relationship with God, submitting to His will, and then being brought into a life as we model our lives after His in the power of the Holy Spirit, being brought into a life where there is rest for our souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't it wonderful? I think it'd be something to have been standing in that scene and then, you know, I'm a, and then seeing what the impact of this message would have had into that crowd. I don't even, I'm not concerned about the scribes and the Pharisees in the crowd. Hit them like a ton of bricks. But to look at the average person, they wanted to know God and the greatest obstacle to them knowing God was the representatives of the religious systems of their day. And, and then to see the relief that would come upon people to realize that's where rest for my soul is found. Salvation in, God, in Christ, submission to His will, and then becoming like Him. And it's the truth. Um, I'm a big basketball fan, and I'm a big Golden State Warrior fan. This is great. Any year, any year we are doing better than L.A., I'm a happy man on a very small level. But it, it, it's, a, it's a great time to be a Golden State Warrior basketball fan. Some of you saw that game last night. Curry is shooting shots from the moon, and he is making them. This is just crazy what we're, we're being able to watch on this. So I'm watching the Thunder game last night. And uh, I tape them and fast forward to the last quarter and, and watch them while I, you know, do some final things for the evening. And, um, and so I'm watching this, and then it looks like there's no way that Warriors are going to win this game. By the way, there's a point to all of this. And uh, we'll be handing out Warrior banners at the end of the, of the service here but in hats. So um, I'm watching all of this, and then Curry goes, he, just, he ends up making like three threes in a row that are just insane. Every one of them, and every one of them is even more insane in what you're watching. And so the, one of the great things about recording a game is that you can go back and look at other things. So while I'm watching it the first time, I'm watching Curry make these shots and just is flabbergasted. I've never seen anything like it in my life. And I've seen a lot of great basketball players on television. Never played against them. But I mean, in all of that. And then what's fun to go back then is to watch him shoot the shot and make the shot. And then I turn and I look at the crowd they were playing in Oklahoma. 
and just watch the impact of that made shot upon the crowd. Well, it was very negative uh, last night in uh, Oklahoma City, but I'd love to have a seat in this particular scene, be sitting there and watch just the light go on for people and just the, um, the relief that would have washed over them as Jesus represented a relationship with God in a completely different way than what they had seen all of their life and what they had heard all of their life. Most of the world that we live in today, it's a very religious world. Very few people, comparatively speaking, are going to end up in hell on the path of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Most people are going to end up there on the path of religion. And here's this wonderful thing. And so often, even with people get disillusioned with Christianity, they get disillusioned with the church and so forth because they've been a part of a religious system that even associates itself with Christianity, but it's a million miles away from this. And what a wonderful thing it is to realize, even tonight, maybe in several hearts, that what you've seen and what you've experienced is not what this is all about and it's not what Jesus died on the cross to purchase for you. This is what Jesus has for us. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't he wonderful? Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we thank you tonight for the magnificence of the truths that we have studied this evening from the life of your Son. And Lord, we pray, even as we look at John the Baptist's crisis of faith and where the more the privilege, the greater the responsibility, this incredible invitation that we've closed with and everything in between, all of this, Lord. And we ask that as we leave this place in a few minutes after uh, talking with one another and saying hi to a few people here and wrapping up with fellowship and all, that anything that you are from this chapter wanting to speak specifically to any of our lives, where you want to continue the conversation in our lives, we pray that you would do that, Lord. Continue to bring each and every one of us, no matter how well we know you, how long we've walked with you, how accurate our experience of Christianity is. Continue to bring us, Lord, more fully into the beauty and the simplicity of what is described here. We thank you as we close, Lord, and with still this um, weight of John the Baptist's crisis that is before us. We pray for anyone that's in that kind of a place here tonight, and we ask, Lord, that you would take them back to your word and the witness of your word to Jesus as the Messiah, and that that would be the single great immovable foundation of their faith, Lord, in the midst of the trial that they find themselves in. And Lord, I pray, and we pray for one another, that this looking at John the Baptist would also be preemptive 
that it would be an inoculation against uh, succumbing to what it is that uh, he found himself in the middle of, Lord, in the lives of any of the people standing in this room when some circumstance will yet arise in their life that will rock their world in a way that they never thought it could be rocked. We thank you, Lord, for the foundation that you have built under our faith. We thank you for your commitment to us, Lord, and to our salvation. We thank you for the very strong grip that you have upon us. We give you our praise. We give you our thanks, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're not a Christian here tonight, there are going to be men and women up in front.